Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Steve Daniels. Steve first joined Crane Communications in 1995 as a Washington, D.C. reporter for Waste News, a trade publication covering the solid waste industry. He then moved to Chicago in 1996 and the following year joined the reporting staff of Investment News, a Crane publication covering the financial advice field. He then became a Crane's Chicago business reporter in March of 1999 and was made a senior reporter in November of 2006. Currently, you can find Steve covering all things within the financial industry, including banks, insurers, and utilities on Crane's Chicago business website or on his Twitter. Listeners, before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about For Your Listening Pleasure's first collaboration. One of the podcast goals is to raise awareness about various nonprofits and organizations doing good in the world. I always ask each podcast guest if they are part of a particular nonprofit or if there's a specific organization that they support. I have a running list and I hope that one day I will be able to raise awareness and give to each of them. I am excited to announce my first collaboration with the Street artist wordsmith together we designed a sweatshirt that you're now able to purchase and all proceeds will be going to pause chicago and pets for vets make sure to listen to each of their mini episodes to learn more about what each organization does and where the funds will go I'm also happy to inform listeners that under the podcast umbrella, I have started my own charitable organization called For Your Charitable Pleasure to ensure that all funds now and in the future go towards organizations making a difference in the world. I'm so excited about this collaboration that I personally will be donating $2 for every Instagram repost with the hope of raising awareness around these two outstanding organizations. All you need to do is follow the podcast on Instagram, tag For Your Listening Pleasure, and include the link to purchase in the repost. Additional information, including social media, usernames, and purchase links can be found in this episode's show notes. One last thing, Wordsmith, also known as Brody, I thank you for your partnership on this. You were gracious enough to respond to my email and agree to come on the podcast. Thank you for dedicating your time and talent to this collaboration, and thank you for helping support two incredibly impactful organizations. And to my loyal listeners, thank you for listening to the podcast week after week, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. And why don't we start at the beginning? What was life like for you growing up? Well, it was kind of the uh, typical suburban upbringing. I grew up in Wilmette uh, in the northern suburbs, North Shore of Chicago. Um, My dad and sort of a relatively typical suburban 70s kind of childhood. My dad uh, was a lawyer. Uh, Mom stayed at home. Two sisters that are younger. Um, And, uh, you know, it it was, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, every family has its little foibles, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty uh, uh, placid, upbringing. Um, and, uh, you know, after that I went to, I went to new Trier. So, uh, you know, well-known, 
uh, public high school that uh, was at the top of lists of best high schools in the country and that sort of thing back then. Um, and I went to college in Ohio, little school, Kenyon uh, College in Ohio. I had a, I had a great time uh, in college and then struck out uh, on my own move to Washington to become a journalist. And I've been a journalist uh, for my entire career, which I guess is a little rare um, these days. People change careers a lot more uh, than they did when I started. Um, and you know, uh, I mean, obviously lots of things have happened along the way, but, uh, but, uh, I got a good start. I mean, I, it was, uh, I, my parents are still, uh, with us. They had me very young, uh, and they're, they're younger than people have kids these days in their early twenties, um, which is nice for me. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I can't complain about, um, uh, anything really having to do with my childhood and upbringing. So most of our listeners probably know you from Cranes, Chicago, but what they might not know is when you started college, I believe you were interested in creative writing and um, that's what you thought you were going to go into, but something happened where you didn't get into a class (laughs) from my understanding that kind of detoured your career. Mm-hmm. Um, your journey. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, not too many people make a, a livelihood out of creative writing, you know. And so, um, I, but that was, you know, what part of what attracted me to go in Kenyon. Kenyon has a heritage of uh, uh, writing writers. You know, I don't know, virtually half the school, and it's a small school were English majors, and I certainly was planning to be one of them. Um, and, you know, I, I had it in my head, you know, as a young, <laughs> as a teenager, hey, I'd love, I'd love to be a writer. You know, I thought that was, I loved reading, and I, uh, and I was good at it. I'm a good writer. I was a good writer and knew I had some skill at it um, and enjoyed it. I mean, I, I was writing stories as a, as a kid. And, uh, in fact, I, I recall... Um, I don't think I shared this with you earlier, but I, I recall in uh, fourth grade, my teacher at the time, I don't know how uh, she learned that I was writing stories, but um, I must have told her. And she actually had me read stories, my stories aloud to the class, which was a little uncomfortable, to be honest. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, cause you don't like to be thought of as teacher's pet or what have you. Um, but um, but I mean, this was something that I was, you know, if there was, there were some things that I was passionate about that at that early age, that was one of them and, and maybe at the top. So yeah, the uh, experience was um, at, towards the end of my freshman year, uh, the, the, uh, the dean of the, or the, the head of the English department was this very, uh, Sword. He, he was he was an intimidating figure, uh, very you know, well known, written lots of books, uh, one of the probably the best known professors at Kenyon. And he was uh, he was signing people. He was getting he was people into his class for the next year in creative writing. And I really wanted to do that. And it was a very small you know group. It was like something like 10. So you had to go in and 
uh, and basically sell him on, you know, having you in his class and, and you needed to uh, give him, uh, you know, a sample of your writing. A lot of my creative writing at the time was fairly sophomoric and not even finished. And so I, had, I think I had finished one story that I actually attempted to be somewhat serious about. And so I figured that's what I would give him. I gave him that. And it, long story short, he hated it. I mean, hated it and told me in no uncertain terms how terrible it was and that I really ought to think about some other, you know, course of action. <laughs> it was fairly devastating um, at the time. Uh, you know, I had my girlfriend at the time got into the class. One of my best friends at the time got into the class and um, not me. So yeah, as it turned out, um, as you know, with things like that in life, you know, uh, it just opened up another door. I, I, I had taken a history class there and um, kind of as a lark and uh, the history department uh, sort of recruited me and said, the professor who, who was teaching me said, we'd, we'd love to have you as a history major. And if you do it, you should do honors and blah, blah, blah. They, you know, the way it works at Kenyon, um, the other departments kind of have to recruit um, you know, to, to compete with English uh, as well. As, I mean, some, some students take, you know, econ and things like that, that they, they're not interested in kind of liberal arts, uh, so to speak. But, but for those who are, English is dominant. And so the other departments kind of have to recruit a little bit. Um, as it turned out, it was a great decision for me. And it, and it led me to journalism, really, because it's, uh, it's all about storytelling. It's all about um, uh, real things that happened and trying to make sense of them and explain them um, and shed light on things that uh, people ought to know. And, and so as it turned out, it, it was good. I think that's really interesting because, you know, I know myself and I'm sure a lot of listeners have had that experience where you really want something, you think this is your path and it just doesn't happen. And there's two choices. One, you can kind of wallow in it and walk away and kind of feel confused and feel like you're not good enough or question a lot of your feelings. Um, or the other is to pivot and look at it as it was a good thing that that door closed because it opened to something else and you did the latter and you I can't even imagine being in college and having your girlfriend and best friend and all these people in this course that you wanted. And not only did you not get in, but the professor pretty much said like, absolutely not, not good enough. And it's hard to kind of come back from that. Um, after school, you went to DC and you started with cranes, um, but you were in waste, the waste industry. And well, no, I did. I actually didn't start at cranes. I, I, um, so I, I didn't think Chicago was a good place to start a journalism career at the time. There, 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 weren't, there weren't very many publications here. Okay. And, and the ones that were here weren't the kind that you start out at, like the Tribune at the, at the time. So, um, but Washington is, you know, you, there's just journalists everywhere. There's publications of all kinds. Um, so I just kind of, I moved out there without a job. And, um, and I ended up working 
at, I started at very briefly at a suburban weekly, but then my first real job was at a daily afternoon, daily newspaper. They don't really exist anymore. Um, in the, uh, exurbs, Virginia exurbs of Washington. And, uh, I was there for a couple of years. Then I, uh, worked on Capitol Hill for a, uh, it was actually kind of a weird job. It was a, I was technically a congressional staffer, but we were journalists. So we were covering environmental and energy policy for, uh, our, our immediate readership were staffers for, you know, house members and senators, but then what we wrote went out to lobbyists and all kinds of people who were interested. And it was just a compendium of the coming week on Capitol Hill, every single hearing, every single everything having to do with energy and environment we would cover. Did that wear you out? I would think that that would be a nonstop job where you would eat, breathe, sleep, energy and what was happening. And I just feel like the longevity of that probably isn't people don't <laughs> stay in that role for that long. Probably not, but yeah, I was young, you know, I got plenty of energy. It, it was, um, it was a weird, it was, I like, I learned a ton. I mean, I, it was invaluable, um, that I have used after, you know, it, my knowledge of how, how things work there is very helpful, um, at times. So, but yeah, at the, at the time it was a it was a crazy job because the way it worked was um, most of the hearings and committee action and even you know floor action everything else would be scheduled uh, towards the end of the week for the next week. So we were looking and we were basically previewing the week, which meant that the vast majority of the copy we would write and that would be edited would be done on Thursdays and Fridays. And we would be there. If, if it was a heavy week on Capitol Hill, we would routinely be there on Friday until midnight, 1 a.m. every single week that they were in session. Now, I mean, uh, I shouldn't say every single week, but a lot of weeks. And there was one editor. <laughs> so he had, to, he had to basically edit all of this. He was a former, he, he was great. He was one of the, one of my, uh, he's, he's somebody who actually taught me how to write a news story more than almost anybody else I can think of. And he was an old wire service reporter. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say he wasn't that old, but he had been a wire service reporter for you know, at least 10 years. And uh, it was just hilarious. We were in this tiny little office and especially when I first started because I didn't have slightest clue. I'm writing about the Clean Water Act and stuff like that. This is this stuff, environmental policy is just so, uh, it's very interesting, but it is really complicated and detailed and uh, nuanced. And if you don't have any real understanding of it, you talk about faking it, you're really faking it. And so I would, you know, write these things. <laughs> and I, he would, he was kind of a high strung character. And I mean that in a good way, but he would be, uh, he'd be sitting there. You knew he was editing your story. And he'd be sitting there swearing, <laughs> saying, what does that mean? He would like be talking to himself. And then you'd hear him typing furiously, uh, rewriting your entire story. Um, and uh, but uh, so it was stressful, but it was also uh, you, had, you didn't have time to uh, worry about all that. You were learning on the fly and you absorbed a lot. And 
eventually got it and 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 he and i and and, and the other reporters and him um were able to uh uh be on the same page and 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 it was good it was it was a good experience but then from there i went from there to cranes um and uh and started at the a it was actually a, a publication that crane communications was launched at the time to cover the garbage industry so i whenever people look at my resume they're sort of really you were waste news <laughs> it's like uh and uh but i have nothing but uh good memories of covering the garbage industry it's just funny you went from environmental to waste very different and well, it, 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 it is would help you it is environment. Would, yeah i would think I mean, that, that was... the previous experience would help you build and communicate the waste industry in like a very um in, informed way well, what it what it was was I came there as a Washington reporter, and I, so I was covering, uh, you know, stuff going on at Capitol Hill and, and in the uh, agencies, dealing with the the solid waste and recycling business. And there's you know a fair amount of that kind of thing. Plus court action. There was all there was all kinds of lawsuits about, uh, uh, you know, it's like say New York State shipping their garbage out to other states and stuff like that. Um, but uh, what actually ended up, it ended up being a pivot point because I ended up moving back to Chicago after about a year in DC with the same publication and started covering the business. And how I learned how to cover business was covering the garbage industry. Um, so I didn't know the first thing about covering business or a balance sheet or income statements or any of that kind of stuff. Um, what I, how I learned that was through the garbage industry. But I believe last time we spoke before you kind of got to move over into the business sector, uh, you had to kind of, you had a on the fly sort of interview with, um, David Schneider. And we talk about anytime you kind of fake it till you make it, mm-hmm. but you faked it and it didn't go as well. Um, Mm-mm. can you talk? Tell, tell our uh, listeners that story. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> well, uh, I, hopefully Dave won't mind me uh, calling him out in this podcast. Uh, Dave Snyder uh, was the editor of Crane Chicago Business at the time. And um, when I was in Washington, um, the bureau chief, because Crane had a whole bunch of publications and all of, they all at the time, not, it's no longer the case because the journalism industry isn't what it was. But back then they had the money to have their own office in Washington bureau with reporters for, for you know, most of their publications uh, stationed in DC covering, you know, federal, the federal policy and the impacts on the various businesses. And uh, the bureau chief was, the Washington reporter for Crane Chicago Business, a guy by the name of Paul Marion. Paul is who was one of the people who started Crane Chicago Business back in the late 70s. And uh, Paul uh, liked me and, and recommended me to uh, David. He basically said, hey, uh, you know, when you're in Chicago, you should meet with Or when he's in Chicago, you should meet with him. And so, uh, so we said, you know, I, I was traveling back and we set something up and, uh, and I went and uh, I thought it was just going to be sort of a, hey, how, how's it going? How are you? Kind of thing. <laughs> um, 
but it was it, it quickly turned into kind of like a job interview where I was asked, you know, job interview kind of questions. Um, and, you know, at one point he, uh, you know, we were sort of just chiming. He's like, okay, tell me what a balance sheet is. And I was like, who, what, what, what? Uh, I didn't know I was going to be uh, tested here. So I, I tried to come up with something. I had no, I didn't really know what a balance sheet was, but I was trying to, I, I'd heard the term, you know, so I was sort of like, well, you know, it's, uh, I don't even remember what I said. And, um, but it was, you know, it was like being in a, in, in high school or something and, and faking it when you haven't done the reading. Um, and uh, the, uh, <laughs> he was very polite about it. He's like, nope, nope, that you just described an income statement, but, um, but yeah, thanks for playing. You know, uh, anyway, he was very nice about it. And he said, you know, uh, it would probably do you some good to maybe take a basic accounting course or something like that. I said, okay, yeah, this probably would do me some good. Did I take a basic accounting course? No, I did not. Um, but, uh, uh, but I, you know, took, took it upon myself to learn what a balance sheet was. Um, and, uh, and to, you know, his <laughs> to his credit and, and with my gratitude, he didn't hold it against me. And later on, he hired me to uh, join Crane Chicago Business after a little bit more time in the trenches. So with your career, um, what story comes to mind or article that meant the most to you? And which one do you think was the hardest to write? Is there anything that pops up in your mind? Oh boy, that's a hard question. I mean, I've, you know, written so many stories that it's uh um i i think the the one that put me kind of on a map when i first got to crane chicago was uh almost by luck but not entirely um i had the scoop on uh unicom it was the parent of commonwealth edison uh did a did a merger with pico in Philadelphia, these are two big utility holding companies. And it's what created Exelon, which is, I think, real familiar to most people, uh, especially given a, a lot of the news of late um, with the Mike Madigan and et cetera. But anyway, uh, I had the scoop on that. And that that was a big one. Um, you know, I had it before the deal was announced. So I looked great. It was probably within my first year of being there. So that was a big deal. So that one's memorable. Um, you know, at the time, uh, a lot of my early journalism experiences were sort of the equivalent of boot camp. Um, so I, I described to you the, the uh, Capitol Hill experience. Um, Crane Chicago was like that too. And at the, at the time, um, Cranes was... Uh, thought of itself, I think probably rightly, as kind of a gadfly sort of publication. Uh, we, were, we were the scrappy underdogs. We, were, uh, we had to work a lot harder. Um, we weren't the Wall Street Journal. We weren't the, the Chicago Tribune. We weren't, at the time, um, the Tribune's business uh, coverage now is, is almost non-existent. But back then, they, they put... Uh, they put a fair amount of resources into it and it was, it was real competition and, and, and it was no, it was 
street fighting kind of stuff. And it was, so we, it was very, very stressful <laughs> because we were, we were a weekly a, and we didn't have the internet yet. Um, so we would get these and, and everything had to be exclusive or had to be a very singular and uncovered and real angle on a story. So it was, you couldn't be writing something that had already appeared literally anywhere else, whether the Wall Street Journal or Tribune. That was the, that was the rule. So you'd get something and it would be Tuesday and you'd sit there biting your nails until Friday, that, hoping it didn't show up somewhere else. Um, and uh, uh, that was every week. It was like that. So um, it's not like that now, thankfully. But, uh, but again, it was a real kind of boot campy sort of experience. One that was exciting. There's a lot of adrenaline that goes with that. Um, but, you know, to your point earlier, you know, it's a little, it's tough to sustain that over a real long period of time. Um, we did do that, but, but it, it definitely wears on you after a while. It's nice not to have to do that anymore. You know, when I think about needing to find out information, there's Google prepping for this interview. I could, I Googled your name and could see every article that you've written in however many years. Um, but before that, like you're talking about, it was a weekly, um, you know, paper, or you would have your article come out once a week. Now I know you're big on Twitter, but you can like write an article and get it out there as quickly as you can write it. Do you think that has really shifted journalism because, you know, some stories take time to develop and grow and get your facts and uh, sources correct. But then other times you see people just putting news out there. So there's that element and I'm using, you know, air quotes, fake news, to it, but how has the internet, do you feel like, really changed journalism as somebody who's writing? It's hard to overstate. Um, it is uh, uh, like night and day, um, mostly in good ways. I mean, I, I, I appreciate being able to, when I've got something, uh, get it out there. Um, and, uh, you know, you still go through your, your stand. You don't give up your standards. Um, you know, you, you verify and you fact check and, and you do all of that. But once it's ready, get it out there. Um, and, I, and I appreciate that. Um, so at least for us, it's changed things uh, very dramatically. We're, we write way more. The volume is is uh, much much higher, um, and uh, and it's. Um, I mean, I I don't think it it means more work necessarily, but I think it's different kind of work. So it's um, uh, it, it's more of a fire hose kind of experience now. You know, the news is kind of always coming at you. Um, plus you're out looking for stuff too. So it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it, I, I like it. I mean, it, it, I like, I much prefer, uh, do, doing journalism in the internet age than before. The other thing too, of course, is that you just mentioned Google, but it, there's so much information on, on the internet. Um, and, and you learn how, where to go for it. And, and it, as you know, as it pertains to the beats that you cover, 
Um, and it's, it's almost miraculous. I mean, compared to, I can't even really remember what it was like pre-internet, but it was brutal. Like get, getting paper, you know, getting people to, to fax you things or whatever. Uh, it's almost, it feels like the dinosaur age. Uh, and um, I was working, you know, for a decent number of years in that age. And uh, now it's, you know, it, it just, it, it just couldn't really be more different. So you talked about sources or scoops and for someone who maybe is a little more naive to the journalistic experience, what does your prep work look like? Do you get facts? Do you, is, how do you go after a story? Do they give you stories? Do you pitch them yourself? What does that process look like? Well, we pitch them to our editors um, and, you know, in the pandemic, with the with you know we're we're sitting here on a Zoom call right now uh, with Slack and Zoom and all of that um, that's introduced a whole new element into uh, into reporting and also uh, communicating with your colleagues and figuring out um, yeah when there's a big story how are we going to divvy that up who's going to do various aspects of it um, just came this week with uh, the the indictment of former House Speaker Mike Madigan figuring out okay first of all let's get the news out there but second of all what what's going to be our sort of piece of it and and um some of that kind of happens serendipitously and some of it happens through planning um news is not uh science so it is it is uh, very much lots of judgment calls all the time judgment of what is newsworthy and what is not uh, judgments of, um, you know, sometimes with sensitive things, what to report and what not. Um, uh, and, um, and really that's kind of what it's like if you, if you, if I sit back and, you know, sort of try to think about what my job is, it's just a whole bunch of judgments being uh, made both by me and by, editors and colleagues every day multiple times so it's um yeah and then you know obviously getting the information figuring out how to communicate it write it what's important what's not all of that it's it's i I mean for me it's i've been doing it so long that i don't even think about how i do it but but it is a uh um yeah it's an elaborate thing So when you talk about judgment calls, I'm sure there's times where you write about companies or people and they're just not happy with how they're portrayed or what you're saying, but you have a responsibility to deliver the facts and to share what's going on. How do you handle that? If, cause we're all in Chicago, I'm sure you run into certain people and they might just not like what you said. How do you handle that? Have you had any experiences where you were kind of surprised by someone's reaction or? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, not surprised necessarily, but, but I have lots of experience with making people unhappy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I've got, I'm not going to say who they are, but it's a, a very large company that I cover and cover all the time will literally not acknowledge an email from me. Um, that's how unhappy 
the CEO of that company has been with what I do. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't written anything inaccurate as far as I know, uh, but uh, they just don't like what I do. And thankfully in the worlds that I cover, there's so much public in information that uh, a company, you know, I cover banks, for example. Um, and if a bank chooses or a CEO or bank, uh, CEO of a bank chooses not to talk to me, and there was one of those as well, um, who is, uh, whose bank has been since been sold, so it doesn't matter anymore. But um, <laughs> it didn't stop me from writing anything because there's so much in the public domain um, that, uh, that it's, uh, I mean, it'd be nice if I could talk to them, but it's not necessary. And it's not going to stop me from sort of co covering things the way I see them or the way that I think our readers would appreciate. Um, so yeah, I, I've got tons of experience with uh, people who are unhappy with me at, you know, it, at first that was something that was, you know, a little stressful. At this stage of my career, um, it just comes with the territory. And as long as I uh, feel like, hey, I, I ran all my traps, I, I, I give you every opportunity to say something. Um, I made it very clear what I was writing ahead of time. There's no surprises. Um, as long as I did all of those things, then it doesn't bother me. Uh, but, uh, and, 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 but it took a while to learn how to do all of that um, and to... Uh, so I think I've gotten to a point where if, if people don't like me, they at least respect me. So that's, uh, you know, that's all I can ask for, really. No, I agree. I think that there's always times that people might not like what you're doing or what you're saying. But if you're staying true to the facts in yourself, then that's really what matters. Um, this podcast kind of came about as a response of what's been going on in the world. I felt like there was a huge lack of empathy and understanding. And, um, you know, I'm at the stage of my career where I can't just write a big check to try to fix a problem or make a, the world better. So I feel like talking to people and really diving into their stories and some tough, uncomfortable conversations about topics that I'm learning or they're learning. Um, but in your career, have you felt the need granted you're reporting on like banking, but to really ever to approach it with empathy. And I guess what comes to mind is the 08 crash when people were really losing their homes and mm -hmm. you just saw people's savings and everything go. Um, how do you, do you write with that kind of understanding in the back of your head sometimes when you're approaching a topic? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it depends on what the subject matter is, but I can think of multiple stories uh, like that. I, I did a, a piece that uh, I'm proud of from, you know, three or four years ago, I'm going to guess, about um, the competitive power supply business, basically these companies that knock on your doors and offer you electric electricity deals, which that's a whole subject that it's a, it's, it's a, at least in the residential arena, probably, you know, frankly, shouldn't exist, but, um, but it does. And so some of the, there, there are some companies that are real shady in that, in that world. And uh, the way they get people to sign up is they, they, they get people to knock on, on their doors who are oftentimes young, down and out, um, 
got other issues like drug problems and what have you. Uh, and anyway, I, I wrote about a couple, young couple, who uh, he was a door knocker and had literally been sent all over the country, he ended up in near Rockford, and, uh, you know, basically was in like a company town kind of thing where he was trapped, like he didn't make enough money to get out. So they would send him around and put him up in like these boarding houses with other multiple other people doing this in fairly, I'm not going to say squalid conditions, but uh, uh, not the kind of conditions anyone would want to live in. He ended up abandoned by this company in Rockford. Uh, and, and, I, and I did a lot of work on this and told his story and talked about the company and what their practices were and how this was very common. And no one had any idea that this was th the way this business operated or, or the way of life that these guys were living in. And uh, yeah, that story was nothing but empathy. Um, you know, likewise, I, I do a lot of writing about, and, and this is maybe, this is more my thing, because I don't know that cranes would necessarily in and of itself get into this, about uh, utility bills and um, why you know, this, the whole business with Speaker Madigan and ComEd and all of that, um, how political shenanigans were influencing what people pay for heat and electricity. And the people who can't pay those bills as they go up and up and up are typically low income or seniors on a fixed income. And um, I have been sounding the alarm on this for years and years and years. And I feel like I sometimes I'm just howling into a, a wind and no one's listening to me. Um, but it doesn't stop me from writing about it because there's nothing more sort of basic than keeping warm and keeping the lights on and being able to afford to do that and not have to like not get medicine or other food or whatever in order to afford your, your electric bills. It's interesting you bring that up um, because um, I live in um, West town area in Chicago and I'm part of a few uh, neighborhood Facebook groups. And over the winter, people were posting about their electric and heat bills and they're saying, I keep my apartment at 65 and I am freezing and my bill is $200. And when you break it down, the taxes, this, that, and everything else, it's crazy that it costs that much. And um, even mine, I was surprised, you know, it's a one bedroom and it was so high. I'm very so thankful. About your electric or your heat? But, uh, my heat. I was just so right. lucky that I can afford to pay it, but it did cross my mind. Like, what happens if you have kids and they get sick and, you know, with everything going on with the pandemic and the bills just keep going up um, and it's a huge problem and people talk about it, but then, then what? So how, when, with your writing, when you are reporting on things, how do you try to hold um, those you're writing about account accountable? How do you try to do that? Do you just keep having more stories come out? Do you use different context you know to say look into this more is there something else that can be done yeah it's just exposing the the racket it's a political racket um and 
it's, it's a bit of a long story, so I won't go into it too much, but the bottom line is that politician, you know, the state of Illinois has not been known for its uh, super clean politics. Uh, you know, when the courts clamped down on pay, ghost payrollers and all that stuff in the public sector, what, what politicians then did to try to keep hold on to that sort of power was to use utilities, which are almost like public sector, but they're not. They're private sector. They have investors. They pay dividends. They, and they use them, and the utilities needed politicians in order to approve plans that would ensure that their profits go up. Um, and, uh, and in return, they would hire people that politicians advocated for and became sort of a, a replacement for the, for the pu public sector sort of payroll or stuff that had existed for decades before the courts clamped down on that. Um, so it stinks to high heaven. I mean, it's, it's couldn't be more, um, more awful in terms of a good government or an ethical sort of uh, way of looking at it. So, yeah, I just, again, I, I, I write about it all the time because there's constantly things happening that are, and, and now what, this, this, this worked out okay for utilities as long as energy prices were really low, which they had been for a decade, but now they're not. So suddenly, as you just pointed out, everyone's noticing, holy crap, my heat bill is insane. It's not even that cold this winter. Um, and, uh, and, and the reason is because energy prices have gone up to it. What frankly was, is a relatively normal level before this whole fracking revolution with oil and gas drilling, uh, you know, reduced energy prices to incredibly low levels for, for 10 years. So no one noticed. Well, now they're noticing. Um, and the politicians eventually are going to have to do something, but they've really waited way too long. So it's going to be, especially with heat, it's going to be a real uh, problem in terms of um, fixing that. And um, yeah, it's just something that, that has been laid to the side for a long time for other priorities. And eventually it's going to be an emergency probably within a year or two. I feel like um, for our listeners who live in Chicago or Illinois, there's a lot of issues that are going to start really coming to a head. I feel like um, just even crime in Chicago and then businesses leaving and taxes, it can go on and on. As somebody who is really in it, do you have a positive outlook of where the city and the state are going? Do you feel good about it? Or if you don't, what could we be doing more as people either contacting our, you know, elected officials or what are your thoughts? I think that, um, I think there are, there are, I think there's definitely worries about crime are legitimate. I live in the city. Um, and I don't think it's as safe as it was. Now, of course, there are reasons for that beyond the sort of um, talking points that various sides routinely throw out there. First and foremost to me is the pandemic. I mean, there's just 
nobody out on the street in certain parts of the city and haven't really been for a couple of years. Um, when there's nobody there, that makes crime so much easier to, to, to do. I mean, it, so I, I think that as we come out of the pandemic, I think things naturally will get somewhat better just because there will be people on the street, witnesses, that sort of thing. I think that's underappreciated as, as part of this problem. But that's not to say that uh, uh, you know, policy issues, um, the issues of law and order, um, the, what happened with uh, the sort of defund, I, I don't like to use the term, but the defund you know, police, uh, talking points, sloganeering, um, all of these things play into it. Um, in general, though, um, Chicago is a great city. And I, I lived when I lived in Washington back in the 90s, um, uh, that city was falling apart. And when I, when I left, when I moved back to Chicago, it was in the mid-90s, D.C. was a mess. I mean, it was, this was Marion Barry was the mayor. Uh, there was, you know, you, you didn't even get your garbage picked up all the time. I mean, it was really bad. D.C. now is thriving. It's incredible, just an economic powerhouse. It's, it's uh, absurd how different it is now than when, when I was there. And I think that's how people need to think of Chicago. This is a great city with tons of fantastic resources at its disposal, uh, not the least of which are its people. Um, so I, I'm, I, I'm optimistic that ultimately it will, it will be uh, much better. Um, and, I, and I do think some progress has been made in certain areas, certainly fiscally. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, there's big challenges. And, and, um, and it doesn't help at all when, uh, when old school political deal, deal making and the kind of stuff that really, you know, Chicagoans used to kind of wink at and smirk at and say, yeah, our crooked politicians, whatever, at least, you know, every, but things function. Yeah. I, th I think finally that's done. And, uh, and I, and I think that, uh, as, you know, I think, I think we're headed in a better direction and, and uh, frankly, you know, one of the things that's sad about all of this is, is the demise of my profession, right? The, the, what, what the accountability that we're talking about oftentimes is, comes about because of dogged reporting, aggressive journalists, um, and there's just so much far fewer of them. A lot of really experienced, fantastic investigative journalists have left the profession. Um, so we've got a lot of younger, not as experienced uh, reporters out there. And I worry about that. I worry about just stuff not being found out that otherwise would have been in a different day and age. What advice would you have to those coming up? What do you wish that they would maybe focus on or pay a little bit more attention to um, for younger reporters coming up? What were some best practices? You know, um, one of the, the thing about that I learned about journalism is there's, well, I, I guess I have a piece of advice. I mean, the, the yeah. one, and, and, and one of the things that, you know, we talked about earlier in this discussion was some of the times when I tried to fake it and it didn't work out real well. Um, don't ever do that. 
don't pretend you know what you don't know. Um, uh, it took me a long time to learn that. And I, I used to do that. And, um, yeah, I'm sure there were a few times where it helped me, but, um, but in general, you know, today somebody says something, I don't know what they're talking about. I say, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I don't, I just explain. I mean, this is a stupid question. Maybe this is a dumb question, but please. And they almost always, they appreciate me asking that. Um, so I think when you're younger, you tend, you tend to not want to do that. You tend to not want, it's like, look, I'm young. They can tell I'm young. Um, and they assume I don't know anything. Um, so I would like to show them that I know something. Um, and, and, uh, it took, you know, I learned, you know, some, I learned, I wouldn't say the hard way, but I learned that it was not effective. Didn't help me to do my job better. Um, and it didn't actually win anybody's respect. Um, so, uh, so that's the first piece is just, if you don't know something, ask. It, it may seem stupid, that's fine. Just ask. Um, but, uh, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, uh, it, otherwise there's no fast forward button. <laughs> you know, you, you, you got a new beat and you, you got to learn something new. Um, it takes a good long time to be real expert at it. Um, and in the meantime, of course, you got to write stories and you got to report. And there's just no, there's no, like I said, there's no pushing the fast forward button on that. It's just ask questions, read, learn read other people's stories on, on the subject, see what they did, what did they think was important, what went at the top of the story, what, what went at the middle, what went at the bottom, stuff like that. No, I think those are two excellent pieces of advice. I know that um, the first one about asking questions, don't fake it. I can relate because I'm younger in my career and there's some been points where I didn't want to have to ask, can you elaborate on that? Or how does that fit into the overall plan or strategy? But when you don't ask, you almost get left behind because people are moving on, assuming you know what, what's going on. And if you don't, then it almost makes you look worse that you didn't stand up or raise your hand and say, hey, can you slow down? And can you elaborate on that? And then once I have a good understanding, keep going. Because a lot of the time, people are trusting you to, oh, you're good. You can move on. Like, great, go for it. And if you don't, that I feel like makes you look worse. Yeah, if- I, I agree. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think people almost invariably, in my experience at least, appreciate it. They don't want to have, I mean, they want you to understand or whomever they're dealing with to understand what they're talking about. And particularly with reporters, when, when people talk to reporters, I, I've been in, on the other side of this a couple of times, and I hated it. I don't like talking to reporters if they're re- interviewing me, you know, for something they're going to write that where I'm going to appear. It's extremely uncomfortable um, because you just don't know if this you can trust this person to get it right to really reflect what you think. Um, and, uh, you're taking a, almost, you know, a wild chance since if you don't know the person, now, of course, if you know them and you've worked with them, you develop that trust 
and then you can talk very freely and and it's and and things go much more smoothly but until then boy it's extremely stressful situation and i don't blame anybody although of course my i shouldn't say it but i don't blame people for not talking to reporters or or at least being very leery of it um uh you know because there are you know not every reporter is good i mean not that they mean badly but they're just not that good at what they do or they're you know they're still learning and they barely know anything and so you've got to take the time to explain everything to try to make sure that it gets straight. It's, I, I get it. No, absolutely. So we end every episode with the same three questions. I'm really curious to hear your theme song one, because I know you're a music guy, but. Um, <laughs> I had to the, think about that. Yeah. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? I don't have a quote or a mantra, but to the extent that I ever do, it's basically be a decent human being. I mean, I, you know, there's, you're not always going to succeed in even accomplishing that, right? I mean, there are times in everyone's life when they do things that they're not proud of. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, when presented with the choice, um, be a decent human being. It's not that hard. No, I think that's so timely with everything that's going on in the world. And it's so simple just to treat others well. Yeah. Be a good person. Rule. Yeah. It's yeah. not that hard. I don't know why we make it so difficult. Um, the second question is if you could relive any one day, which day would you pick? Yeah, that was a hard one too. Um, so I, I, I'm cheating and I'm going to say a year instead of a day. Um, that works. So, so my uh, junior year in college, I uh, spent abroad. I was in London um, and uh, got a chance to travel, you know, during vacations all throughout Europe and all of that. And that was just a once in a lifetime experience that I would love to, you know, relive. Maybe I would, if we come out of this pandemic, I could do a little bit of traveling and, 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 and uh, get a little bit of that experience, but there's nothing like being a student, um, you know, abroad in the, in the sense that you're living there and you're not looked upon with as much maybe suspicion or skepticism as your typical tourist. You're you're part of the scene, um, and you know they don't have a lot of money, but at the time, at least, they didn't need a lot of money to. Uh, to be able to have all, all these incredible experiences. Um, so uh, for every college student, I would I recommend uh, doing that, uh, at least for a semester. But, um, but for me, it was the whole year and I would that was just fantastic. No, I, I'm jealous a year in London. I feel like no matter how many times you go there, you always need a little bit more time. <laughs> yeah, that it, it was different too. It was in the eighties, and, and London oh, was not what it was now. Oh, no, it was not. Uh, it, it was down. It was down in the mouth. For I mean, it was still an obviously incredible city, but it was not a happy place. No, it was under the Iron Lady. So mm-hmm. interesting times. Um, and then the final question is: If you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would you pick? 
Um, so, so I'm a, I'm a, this is kind of a cliche. I'm a huge Beatles freak. Uh, and I'm one of those people who knows way too much about every little thing that they ever did and all that sort of thing. So I was thinking about a Beatles song, but then I was like, no, there really isn't a Beatles song. That's a, to, at least to me, that's like that. So then uh, I thought about, you know, other bands from that era, but they didn't, none of that made any sense. So it's REM, which is, uh, I wish more people that, that uh, were, you know, millennials, uh, Gen Zers appreciated those guys. Um, they, they seem to think about think of them as some kind of, you know, ancient history sort of thing. Their music is every bit as relevant today as it was back when they did it. But so I would, I would pick either begin the begin, uh, or, uh, I believe both of which are from life's rich pageant, uh, which is, uh, an eighties, uh, well, I mean, they have so many great albums, but Begin the Begin kicks off the record and it's just a stomping, you know, especially for them. They're not a super hard rocking band. Uh, it's about as hard rock as they ever, ever got. Um, and it, you know, Begin the Begin says it all. I mean, it's uh, let's start all over again. Let's let's begin it. And then I believe is similarly just an exuberant uh, song. Um, if anything, I maybe I would pick that. I like it more. Um and, 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 you know, it, it's, it's for, for somebody who's not a re religious person or somebody who doesn't have you know, belief in, you know, it could be atheist or whatever, or not a strong belief in God, um, talks about, okay, well, then what do you believe? Um, and that's what that song is about. Uh, and, uh, um, and like I said, it, it, it's the music as much as the words, it's the exuberance of uh of you know life on earth living a uh, human being what do you believe so well i'm gonna add both of those songs because i also am a big fan of them and i don't think enough people know their music so hopefully um both these songs will be added to the for your listening pleasure theme song playlist on spotify to encourage others to listen to them and get into their music so those will go along with all the other guest theme songs. All right. Good news. Yeah. So Steve, thank you so much. This has been so lovely. Um, it's been great to learn more about your career and kind of the hills and small valleys um, <laughs> along the way. So thank you. I really appreciate this. That was fun. I appreciate you asking me to come on.